0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Greenwashing. Corporate regulator ASIC commences its first prosecution. Consumer watchdog the ACCC vows to get tough on dodgy claims. And in an exclusive for Law Report listeners, research reveals how advertisers target your social media feed with greenwashing ads.
0: They know regulators can't scrutinise those ads because they just appear on our feeds and then they're sort of gone.
1: Hi, Damien Carrick here. First, lawyers for former US fighter pilot Daniel Duggan have lodged a complaint to the UN Human Rights Committee over what they describe as the degrading conditions of his detention in a Sydney remand centre. The Australian National is confined to a four metre by two metre cell while extradition proceedings commenced by the US government unfold. He faces weapons trafficking and money laundering charges linked to his alleged training of Chinese military pilots, charges he strenuously denies. I'm joined by Melbourne barrister Gideon Boas. He's an expert on extradition law. Gideon
2: Boas, who is Daniel Duggan? So Daniel Duggan was a US Marine pilot between 1989 and 2002 who, after leaving the Marines, moved to Australia, where he married, had six children, uh, became an Australian citizen in 2012 and thereafter renounced his US, US citizenship. So he is now a sole Australian citizen. He had been providing, uh, as we understand it, training to pilots of uh, Chinese nationality in an operation that's now drawn uh, the interest of the US government.
1: And what do we know? What what are the allegations of the US government? What laws do they say that he has broken?
2: They're a curious set of charges, as I understand it. Uh, I haven't seen the charges or the documentation provided in support of them, but we understand from reporting that he's been charged with breaching uh, trafficking and arms control laws and also of money laundering, apparently in relation to the receipt of funds from the Chinese government in relation to that training process.
1: Now, what does Daniel Duggan say and his legal team say about these allegations? And what do we know about the kinds of training and who was trained and the views of both sides about what what the facts are?
2: So my understanding of the allegations are that he is ostensibly uh, providing or had provided training. Uh, Importantly during a period when he was a US citizen, so between 2009 and 2012, to Chinese pilots who were associated with the Chinese authority, so ostensibly military training, and that's where the problem comes in.
1: And this was at an aviation school in South Africa?
2: That's correct. So at an aviation school in South Africa, a number of other People were also providing training, as we understand it. He claims, or his legal team claim, that he was training civilian pilots and not military pilots.
1: And the US authorities say he was training Chinese military pilots.
2: That's correct. And that's the, that's the foundation for the charges, as I understand it.
1: And I think um, my understanding is that he says that he was training civilian pilots in civilian training aeroplanes, not in jet fighters. That's correct. He denies these charges and claims that they are politically motivated. What would be the argument here?
2: So the argument is ostensibly that uh, he's a victim of a change in geopolitical circumstances, relations between US and China having gone somewhat south over the last few years. Interestingly, the indictment was issued in 2017 in Washington, it was placed under seal as seems to be a fairly common practice for uh, us indictments particularly in relation to national security related issues so the argument really is that he is the subject of a set of political circumstances that are retrofitted to his conduct back between 2009
1: and 12 gideon boas uh, daniel Duggan is currently sitting in a prison cell in a cell i think 2 by 4 meters we'll come to the custody conditions in a moment But at what stage is this extradition process and where will it go from here?
2: So there are ostensibly four steps in the extradition process under the Extradition Act and everybody's subjected to them. Daniel Duggan's passed through the first two, that is an arrest warrant has been sought and issued. He's been taken into custody and the Attorney-General has issued the appropriate notice under Section 16 of the Act. And has provided Daniel Duggan with the charges and relevant material, the supporting material that enable him to understand what the nature of the charges against him are. There's a further two steps. The next is in some ways the most important in the sense that uh, he gets to go before a magistrate and he gets to challenge the extradition request in a substantive sense. And there, the court will need to be satisfied, first of all, that the supporting documentation is satisfactory, that it explains sufficiently, coherently and clearly the charges which he faces, and to confirm that they are extraditable offences. The magistrate will need to be satisfied as to the principle of dual criminality, that is that the uh, conduct with which he is charged is sufficiently similar to conduct that would constitute offences under Australian law. (laughs) you
1: <laughs> Okay, is that a is that a simple question or is that a complex one?
2: So in most cases, it's a fairly simple question. If you're arresting somebody for murder, for example, or for even for a simple case of money laundering or some sort of property offence, then there are obviously going to be sufficiently analogous charges in Australia uh, to that which you would face in the US. There are cases uh, where that's not really so. So for example, there was a recent case where Hungary sought the extradition of a, an alleged war criminal by the name of Zentai, um, and that collapsed under the terms of the extradition treaty between Australia and Hungary, largely because at the time at which Zentai was said to have committed the offence, murder as a war crime was non-defence under Australian law. So that, that can occur. In this case, it's actually difficult to tell without seeing the very specific charges and the evidence that supports those charges. The use of the concept of money laundering and of arms trafficking in the context of training foreign national pilots seems to be unusual. And so I think there will be a question and a a, a contest as to whether dual criminality applies.
1: So do our courts, when deciding whether or not to send somebody to another country, look at the evidence? they look at the charges? Do they also look at the evidence?
2: So they, they have to look at the supporting, what's called the supporting documents under the Act. Those supporting documents have to provide a sufficiently clear and coherent story that founds the charges. They don't assess the evidence in the sense that they uh, meet a legal test. So it's not, for example, that they have to satisfy a prima facie test of evidential value. But they do have to support the charges that are brought. And if the court determines that the evidence or the information provided is insufficient, then it can either call for further information or evidence, or indeed it can deny.
1: And do they make some kind of assessment about whether or not it is, as Daniel Duggan's legal team suggests, politically motivated? Yeah, so
2: that's that's one of the other... Uh, issues that the magistrate will be called upon to determine. um, That is whether there's an extradition objection. And one of those objections that can be raised and will be no doubt in this case is that this is a politically motivated extradition, that the offences charged are political in nature. And that's a very difficult test because uh, invariably, most criminal charges, particularly in this sort of field, are going to attract a political quality to them. Uh, the question here is not so much whether they have a political context, that is, they sit within a political context at the time, but whether they are indeed properly founded charges.
1: So the next step is the magistrate to make that kind of determination that can then go on appear what,
2: all the way to the High Court? Uh, it can, Um, depending on the nature of the decision made and the issues that are raised on those determinations by the lower courts, it can ultimately go to the High Court on this part of the process. That could take years. It could, and there are stories, many stories, of that occurring, probably the most notorious being uh, Dragon Vasilkovic, whose case uh, he had an extradition request placed on him by Croatia, and that process took about 10 years to make its way through the courts before he was indeed extradited.
1: That, that's relating to allegations of war crimes during the Balkans' war. Daniel Duggan has made a complaint, or his legal team has made a complaint, to the UN Human Rights Committee about his detention conditions. What do we know about those detention conditions? They do sound rather extreme. And is it standard for people to be held in custody pending this extradition process?
2: So to answer the last question first, yes, it's standard. And in fact, the Act provides for a presumption of detention awaiting the extradition determination, and to ostensibly to obtain bail, uh, one needs to show special circumstances. So there is a presumption that one is detained, one gets one shot at bail under the Act, unless you can show new facts and circumstances. So, you know, if you're going to make a bail application, obviously it needs to be uh, well constructed. And to answer the, the other aspects of your question, the detention conditions are odd. He's been held, as, as you've noted, under maximum security and isolation conditions. He has had, uh, at least it's reported, uh, very limited contact with family, very limited contact with his legal team. He's had very curtailed opportunities to prepare his defence. Uh, there are limits on even basics like pens and paper that he's been able to have access to, at least initially, and uh, limits on the medical care That he's been able to obtain he was uh, as i understand it initially classified as an extreme high risk restricted prisoner or detainee rather that it appears or at least so it's reported that's been lifted but he's still in isolation conditions Uh, he's been assessed by a psychologist who as i understand it has determined that his conditions are extreme and inhumane and indeed that he is at risk of developing a major depressive disorder
1: Gideon Bowers, you're an expert in extradition law. Are these kinds of detention conditions unusual?
2: They are unusual. Uh, you, You would only generally place a prisoner in isolation where there is a risk to their personal security or where there is a risk of them being a security risk themselves. Given the nature of the charges brought here, they have a flavour or a context or a backdrop of national security, and one wonders why it is that is being held in these conditions.
1: So in your assessment, are these detention conditions unreasonable given the nature of the charges against you?
2: It's always difficult to determine the reasonableness of detention conditions without knowing all of the facts involved, but on the face of it, yes, they seem unreasonable. Also,
1: is some kind of assessment made about his flight risk? Uh, and, and I'm wondering if somebody has six kids and a spouse, So they, would you make an assessment that they're less likely to, to flee the jurisdiction?
2: I could make some politicised comments about the nature of bail laws in this country and their very onerous nature. Uh, and we've seen reference to those in the Victorian jurisdiction recently. Unfortunately, under the Extradition Act, there's a presumption against bail. Uh, That seems to be the absolute norm, and very, very few exceptions of those exist. On one occasion, a dragon Vasilkovich was released after a favourable federal court ruling, uh, and unfortunately he absconded and had to be found and arrested. So that unfortunately didn't assist, no doubt, people in Daniel Duggan's position.
1: Now, Daniel Duggan has made a complaint to the UN Human Rights Committee about those detention conditions. How effective do you think that step might be to changing his conditions?
2: It's probably not going to have the effect of seeing him released or the extradition process abandoned, but it may assist him in at least in ameliorating the circumstances of detention in which he finds himself
1: perhaps by focusing media attention on those conditions as opposed to the process itself unfolding, which would take many years?
2: So it's both uh, media attention, but also if the committee itself makes a determination that's adverse, that has to be considered and addressed by the government. In recent times, the response of the Australian government to... Uh, determinations that are adverse by the Human Rights Committee have been uh, dismissive, to say the least. Possibly under this new government, there may be a more diplomatic response, but I doubt that it would lead to anything more than improved detention conditions.
1: Do you know, does the Australian government reject uh, extradition applications from some governments and generally accept them from others? And I'm thinking ones like our close ally, the United States?
2: So a country like the United States would be more likely to receive a favourable outcome from a extradition request. But that's only to say that there is, as there is with many countries, a bilateral treaty in place that regulates the nature of extradition between those two countries. And because the conditions of detention in the United States are likely to meet with satisfaction the court's concerns about the transfer of a person to that jurisdiction. That, that might be different, for example, in a, in, a, in a jurisdiction in the developing world.
1: Detention conditions and confidence in the court
2: system? So it has to be confidence that the person will receive a fair trial and that they'll be tried according to law and that they'll be jailed in accordance with uh, Australia's understanding and concerns for basic rights. And they might also seek a assurance, that is, that he's not charged and tried for matters that are outside of the facts that have been presented to Australia seeking extradition.
1: There's not, if you like, bracket creep. That's it. Gideon Boas, thank you. Thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report.
2: My pleasure, Damien.
1: Expert in extradition law, Gideon Boas. He's a Melbourne barrister and also an adjunct professor at La Trobe University. The Law Report sent a series of questions to Corrections New South Wales around Daniel Duggan's prison conditions. You can find a full copy of its response at the Law Report website. In the first case of its kind, corporate regulator ASIC has launched proceedings against superannuation provider Mercer. Professor Christine Parker from University of Melbourne Law School joins me now. Christine Parker, what is ASIC alleging that Mercer has done?
0: ASIC has taken action against Mercer superannuation fund in relation to its seven sustainable plus investment options. So ASIC has alleged that the the way that Mercer has represented what these investment options are is misleading because they've basically said these are options for people who are deeply committed to sustainability and that they exclude investments in companies involved in carbon intensive fossil fuels like thermal coal and also exclude alcohol production and gambling. So basically Mercer has said, hey we've got these, sustainable investment options, and ASIC says, well, actually, when we looked at them, they don't exclude all those companies. So So what is ASIC...
1: Through this action seeking from Mercer, what kinds of penalties or enforcements is it seeking?
0: They're basically seeking an injunction against Mercer, making these representations. So they're saying you shouldn't be representing these funds as um, sustainable in this way when they're not, um, and you should stop doing it. And they'll also be seeking um, pecuniary penalties, so fines.
1: And this is the first case of its kind in Australia. Have corporate regulators, the equivalents of ASIC in in other countries, have they taken similar actions?
0: So last year, the US financial regulator, the Securities and Exchange Commission, fined two financial institutions in the millions for making the same kind of misleading representations that are being alleged against Mercer. So I think this is an area where there's going to be a lot more action in the future.
1: And the US case you're talking there involved uh, BNY, Mellon Corp, and and Goldman Sachs uh, Group. And I think they were fined, I think, 1.5 million and, and 4 million, respectively. The ACCC, the Australian Consumer and Competition Commission, has just published research about the extent. Of greenwashing and also said it's going to ramp up its investigations into breaches of these kinds of uh, l- rules. What research did it release?
0: Yes, yeah, so last October, the ACCC did what they call a sweep of business websites looking for green claims that were being made on those websites. So the ACCC targeted industries where these kind of green claims are quite common. Um, So things like clothing, energy, transport, where various claims about environmental credentials are being made. They looked at 247 business websites And they found that 57% of the, the claims made by those 247 businesses as concerning. And that's because there are so many vague, unsubstantiated claims out there.
1: Now, the day after the ACCC released its research... Greenpeace lodged a complaint asking the ACCC to investigate what it describes as misleading and deceptive claims by Toyota. Very briefly, what are those claims?
0: Um, Greenpeace obviously had their complaint all ready to go. They've been identifying Toyota as giving a false impression in their advertising that they're actually leading the transition to clean cars but they're actually acting globally to block the take-up of electric vehicles. So they're saying, you know, there's a lot of evidence that Toyota have actually lobbied against policies to take up electric vehicles. And then they also, Greenpeace are also saying that various specific advertisements that Toyota has had about particular cars are misleading in various ways. Um, So, for example, Toyota has advertised one of their hybrid cars as being self-charging. So they say the electric battery will self-charge as you drive. But of course, the battery is only self-charging because there's a fossil fuel in the petrol tank that is actually the thing that's charging the battery. So that's misleading. So there's a number of claims like that that Greenpeace has.
1: Very interesting. Now, speaking of advertising, um, there was a big case in the UK, I think, involving um, HSBC
0: Bank. This was a case that actually went to the Advertising Standards Agency in the UK. So not, didn't go to the consumer regulator as such. In that case, HSBC, the big bank, they ran a big ad campaign in the lead up to the Glasgow Conference of the Parties. So the big climate conference in um, 2021 and they put all these ads on bus shelters and, you know, all around the high streets, the shopping strips, um, saying how climate friendly they were, basically. So they they were saying how they'd spent, I think they said they sent a trillion dollars helping clients transition to net zero and that they were planting two million trees to help um, store carbon. And that prompted dozens of complaints because HSBC is still also financing plenty of quite intensive fossil fuel companies. And so uh, these complaints were made to the Advertising Standards Agency and the Advertising Standards Agency found against HSBC and said that in future, if they were advertising their climate credentials, if you like, at the same time, they would also have to disclose that they were still financing businesses that were harming the climate.
1: And were they fined or were they just...
0: I don't think the Advertising Standards Agency has power to fine. It's more just they say what you are and aren't allowed to... To do and what you can do in the future, because that's more like a self regulatory agency. Yeah.
1: Okay. So we've been talking about the ACCC having people walk through the websites of various companies. We've been talking about the bus shelters of HSBC in Glasgow and other cities in the UK. You've been doing some research looking at an even more complicated area, which is what happens on social media, right? Yes. Which can often be subtle. And it can be individually targeted. Now, I want you to tell me about the research you and your team have been doing in that very, very, very complicated and very sophisticated space.
0: So I'm part of a big research centre called the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society. Bit of a mouthful. Uh, We call it the ADMS for short. And one of our flagship projects is called the Australian Ad Observatory. So we have a whole lot of citizens, we call them citizen scientists, who have donated their Facebook ads to our project And this is giving us the opportunity to see the ads that otherwise are not available for public scrutiny. So we can see ads that are going direct to individuals and that gives us an opportunity to investigate whether there might be harmful advertising practices occurring on social media that wouldn't otherwise see the light of day.
1: Which wouldn't necessarily be transparent because they are individually targeted, perhaps. That's Is that what right.
0: you're saying? I mean, what I see on my Facebook feed and what you see on your Facebook feed could be quite different. Um, and I might be seeing ads that are. Different to the ones that you're seeing, so they might from the know, same company. From the same company, so they might be using, you know, pink flowers on on mine, and you know something that they think appeals to you on on yours. Um, but also, even if they're not differentiated in that way, companies might be putting ads on social media that are. Um, sailing closer to the wind in their advertising on social media than they would be if they were doing it on TV or in a newspaper or on a billboard because they know regulators can't scrutinise those ads because they just appear on our feeds and then they're sort of gone.
1: So the citizen scientists you're talking about, are they people who have allowed you access to what comes up on their screen or are they reporting to you um, individual ads?
0: The citizen scientists have allowed us to scrape their ads, only their ads, nothing else. So what have you found? We're in the early days of analysing our research, but our findings to date very much echo the same findings of the ACCC. Many advertisers, especially those in the clothing and footwear, the personal care, and the food and food packaging industries, so many of these advertisers are using a lot of green claims. There's a lot of businesses advertising on social media who don't advertise anywhere else because. They sell only online and a lot of those ones who sell only online are using a lot of really vague and unsubstantiated green claims Um, and particularly in those industries, the clothing and footwear industry, personal care industry and food and food packaging. And we often see these Vague green claims also combined with green imagery, you know, beautiful trees and mountains and so on. And also what's been called diversity washing. So there'll often be, you know, people of different ethnic backgrounds and so on showing in the ads. So you sort of get this whole environmental, social, good feeling, um, but not necessarily any real backup behind them as to what what they're actually doing.
1: So how do you hope this research will feed back into the way that uh, regulators address greenwashing?
0: So one of the things we're interested in is how these claims are being targeted. So we're We expect that certain people, so perhaps middle-aged women, (laughs) might receive a lot of green ads. So people who want to do the right thing, who want to be green consumers and make sure that their consumption actually changes something about the world, are likely to be receiving a lot of these ads. But unfortunately, they're probably being misled about how significant the action is that many of these businesses are actually taking.
1: It's about transparency. It's about governance. It's about disclosure. It's about, yeah, telling the truth.
0: Yeah. And I would also say, you know, we also need to know when do we need stricter government standards to step in and when can we rely on business to do the right thing because the market will work that way. Um, and and this greenwashing makes it really messy to know whether businesses are doing the right thing or not.
1: Professor Christine Parker from the University of Melbourne Law School, thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report.
0: Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here, Damien.
1: That's The Law Report for this week. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law.